You are listening to the Overflow Podcast, a ministry of First Denton. For more information on Overflow, please visit overflowdenton.org. Well, I want to welcome you to our special online-only Overflow. Uh, the reason that we're doing this is because if you were at Overflow last week, you know we took a little bit of a detour from our contrast uh, series. We studied John chapter 2 through 3. And the title of that message was The Most Important Question in the World. And I want you, if you were not there, to go back and listen to that. There's a reason we took that detour, and it's because I truly believe that the question that we asked last week is the most important question in the world that we could ever ask. And and so study that um, text, John 2-3, through with us through our podcast. Um, Today, though, we're going to be back in 1 Corinthians. Yeah, so hopefully this is... Uh, helpful to you, and hopefully you will dig in with me as you're watching this, listening to this, and study uh, 1 Corinthians with me. Before we dive in, though, uh, I want uh, you to know about our series uh, that we're doing in the spring called Ask Anything. Um, In this series, I'm going to be answering questions that you uh, want us to talk about at Overflow. And so we're asking that now you would go ahead and start submitting those questions. And the way that you do that is you go to overflowdenton.org forward slash ask dash anything and you can submit your question there we've already received some great ones and i'm looking forward to reading those questions and beginning to study for those as we get ready for that series later on in the spring so that being said uh, let's dig into first corinthians chapter 10 um, and we're going to start off in verse one and as you're turning there in your in your bible i want to give you a little bit of context here you know it's been a couple weeks since we've been in first corinthians and so what we've seen at this point is Corinth was crazy. It was one of the craziest cultures of their day. And the Corinthian church was really, um, they were being affected by by the culture. The culture was really bleeding into the church and affecting the church as opposed to the church bleeding into the culture and affecting the culture. And so there's two big parts that we've seen to this letter so far. First, what we've seen is Paul starts off by writing to the people, um, getting some things off of his chest that he felt like he needed to say to them. And we studied that the first four, five, six weeks of this series. But then when we get to chapter 7 of the letter, uh, we see Paul begin to answer some questions that the Corinthians had asked him in a previous letter that they'd written to him. And and this is really where our idea for the Ask Anything series came from. But Paul gets these questions and he begins to answer them. And some of the questions were things like, should I get married? The Corinthians were wondering, is it okay to get married or should they stay single? They're asking if it's okay to have sex. Um, they're asking about whether or not it was okay for them to eat meat that had been sacrificed to idols, which for us is really not that uh, applicable of a question because that's not something that we do in our culture. However, what we saw in that text in chapter 8 was how that relates to so many other questions that we face as we, the church, engage culture like we should. There's going to be moments of tension. And in those moments of tension, we're going to find it difficult to answer certain questions like one of the big ones is, uh, should I drink alcohol? And so in that sermon, we talked about some questions that we can ask to help us answer uh, those difficult questions. And then in chapter 9, which we had to skip through some of chapter 9, but chapter 9 he deals with uh, what do we do with our money? How do we best steward our money? What should we give our money to? Uh, And then towards the end of chapter 9, which is what we studied, uh, we see, okay, so how do we intentionally engage culture with the gospel? And there were four things that Paul really gave us, all things all people, all means, all for the sake of the gospel. And so that kind of catches us up to where we are here. And what we see is in all of that, everything that he's saying is is working under this umbrella statement that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, where he says this. He says, so 
whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, he says, do it all for the glory of God. Everything he says in chapters 7 through 10, those four chapters, is really based off of this statement. And really, when you think about it and you see and observe Paul's life and ministry after Christ, his whole life is based off of this. What, whatever he does, he wanted to do it for the glory of God. And this is the lens through which we need to read uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. So here's what I'm going I'm to do. I'm going to read the whole text we're going to study because I want you to see the big picture. And then we'll go back and we'll chop it up. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, it says this. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Verse six, now these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the, to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now, in here, what we're going to see is there's about three truths. And I'll just kind of preface this sermon by saying this. Ever since going through seminary, and I'm still in seminary, but in my preaching classes, they always teach you, okay, you need to have an, illustri- or an, uh, an introduction with an opening illustration. You need to have three points and then a conclusion. Now, when somebody tells me to do something like that, I'm just kind of rebellious at heart. So ever since hearing, I need to always have three points in a sermon. I've always been like, man, forget that. I'm not going to ever have three points. I'm going to either have one point or two points or four points, but never three. The problem, though, is when you come to a text where there's really three key points, you got to preach it how it is. So there's three points in this text, and we're going to see what they are. And then at the end, we'll come back and see really the overall message that Paul's trying to communicate. So you look at verses 1 through 4, and I'm going to read it again. And I want you to pay attention to what's being said here, because it's really, it's really significant to our walk with Jesus. He says, For I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. So Paul, he's been talking about all of these different questions that they've had and being controlled by desires of of the flesh. And he's he's teaching them all this stuff. And then it seems like out of nowhere in, in chapter 10 verse 1 he says, Now I want you to remember something about the Israelites. Now this really isn't in my notes, but... Um, kind of as a pre-point to our three points. The first thing we've got to see in here is we need to remember. We have to be people who remember. We need to remember what God has done in our lives. And we need to remember what God has done throughout history. That's what Paul's challenging these people to do, and here's why. If we forget what God has done in our lives and what God has done throughout history, then we lose our perspective and our sight of who God is and what God's capable of doing. We have to remember. And so, Paul, he gives a little bit of a history lesson here. And I don't know how you are when it comes to hearing the word history, but 
I used to be really terrified of, of studying history. You know, my history classes were always boring. Until college, one of my favorite classes in college was my American history class. It was taught by a guy named Dr. Barry. Uh, and I'll never forget the first class. We all walk in and I heard, every class, be prepared, you're going to take five, six, seven pages of notes. And sure enough, that first class, I go in there, he starts teaching, and I took about seven pages of notes. But this is what that first class was like for me. I, I go in there, and everybody's in there, kind of intimidated, and he starts to teach. He's not using PowerPoints. He's just telling the story. And it was so incredible because he was so passionate about the story, and as he's telling the story, he kept building it up further and further and further to this point where it's like you're on the edge of your seat, and you're just waiting for what's about to happen next. In that first class, he builds up the story of American history to this point where we're on the edge of our seat waiting for this climactic moment. And then he looks at his watch and he says, okay, I guess you're going to have to come back next week and figure out what happens. And we're like, oh, you got to be kidding me. We're like throwing our desks and like throwing our pen. We didn't throw anything really. But we were upset because we're like, man, we got to wait another day or two days to figure out what happens. So everybody came the next day to class. Nobody missed. And he starts off class and he tells us, okay, here's what happened in that climactic moment. And then he begins to tell the story again. And, and again, he built up that story to a climactic point and looks at his watch and says, well, I guess you're going to have to come back next week for the rest of the story. And this is what he did every single day of that semester. So we didn't miss class because we, we started to see how awesome American history was. And I share that story with you because, listen, American history is awesome, but the story of what God has done throughout history is even more awesome. And this is what Paul's trying to get them to see. So you see verse 1, he says, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, or, or he's saying, remember, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He starts off by giving two examples. He, he, he's telling them that, okay, remember how Israel was held captive in Egypt. And they cried out to God, asking them to be set free because they were being mistreated, they were held as slaves. And so God, through Moses, sets them, three, sets them free uh, from Egypt. And part of that was, once they were set free from Egypt, God begins to lead uh, the people through the desert by a, a, a pillar of fire at night and a cloud of smoke during the day. And he even used that cloud of smoke at one point when they get pinned up against the Sea of Reeds or the Red Sea, and they see the Egyptians chasing after them, trying to come back and kill them. Uh, they're pinned and they're freaking out, where are we going to go? And so God takes that cloud in Exodus chapter 13, 14, I believe, and he settles it in between the Israelites and the Egyptians, protecting the Israelites from the Egyptians. And he says, okay, so don't forget also how the Israelites, they passed through the sea. So you know what happens next in the story. As God's setting them free from captivity, he then parts the waters of the Red Sea, and the Israelites pass through on dry ground. And then the Egyptians, as they chase after them through that Red Sea, God closes the Red Sea up on them and defeats uh, the Egyptians. That happens in Exodus chapter 14. And then you get to verse 2. In verse 2 it says, and, and don't forget how all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now for us to hear that, I think it's a little bit confusing because when we think of baptism, we think of what we saw happen just this past Tuesday night. We saw a few students get baptized after overflow. And when we see them get baptized, we're up there in the water and they get dunked under the water and brought back up. And we, we have talked about what that's symbolic of, which we'll see again here in a second. And I think really what, what Paul is trying to show in this is that both of these experiences that the Israelites had of, of being led by the cloud along with Moses and passing through the Red Sea along with Moses, they're saying that it brought them into this perfect union, this shared experience with Moses. Um, and, and it's similar to how when we put our faith in Christ, 
um, we have this shared experience with Jesus. If we have died with him, uh, if we've put our faith in him, then that means we have died with him. And the Bible says in Romans 6 that if we've died with him, then surely we will also be raised with him. Then he goes on in verse 3 and 4. In verse 3 he says, And remember how all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. He's showing how uh, the, the Israelites, uh, this was from Exodus 16 and 17, how um, after they'd been set free and they're in the desert, not really a place for them to, uh, to harvest crops and have food, God provided for them through this manna, this bread that fell from heaven. And then at one point, they didn't have any access to water. So God provided for them through a rock in the middle of the desert. Uh, God provides water out of this rock, out of nowhere. And, and if you read on the rest of verse 4, listen to what it says. It says, For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Jesus. And here's what's so cool about what Paul's doing. By comparing all this to Jesus, he's showing how the journey of the Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness all the way to the promised land, which we track in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that journey is a parallel to the life of a Christian. I mean, think about this. This is, this is really significant. Think about how the Israelites were held captive in Egypt. The reality is, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, and, and this is true of all humans, Christian or not, we all start off in captivity to sin. In Romans 10, 4 says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And just like the Israelites called on the name of the Lord, God came and saved them out of captivity in Egypt. We too, when we call on the name of the Lord, will be saved out of captivity to sin. And then God tells us that we should be baptized. And he tells us to get baptized because it's really symbolic of something that's already happened in our life. Just like I said earlier, Romans 6 says that when we put our faith in Christ, it's just like we have joined Jesus in his death on the cross, paying for our sin. And if we've joined him in his death on the cross, then surely we also will be raised to life with Jesus just like he was raised to life. So there's that baptism comparison that he makes in verse 2. And then verses 3 and 4 where he talks about the Israelites being fed by the spiritual food and drink. Remember what Matthew 4, 4 says. Jesus is talking and he says, listen, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And I believe it's in John chapter 6 where Jesus calls himself the bread of life. The reality is once we come to know Christ and he saves us from our sin, he begins to lead us. And as he leads us, he feeds us that spiritual food and he gives us that spiritual drink and our bodies grow and we mature and we become closer to him in our relationship and we become more like him. But listen to what Paul says next. You look at verse 5 and he says, Nevertheless, so in spite of all these incredible things happening, he says, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. He says, nevertheless, even though all this had happened, with most of them, God was not pleased. And I'm pretty sure I've said this before in, in a past talk, but even though, or, or, or just because, you might be able to call yourself a Christian because of what God, by his grace, through our faith in Jesus has done. And, and what I mean by that is he, through Jesus, has has taken our souls and made our souls holy and righteous through Jesus. Even though that may have happened in your life, that does not necessarily mean that our actions or that our hands reflect the set-apart status of our soul. In other words, Jesus is the one who makes your heart holy, but we're responsible for our hands. We're responsible for our actions. And so even though, even though God had taken the Israelites and chosen them and, and taken them out of captivity 
the Israelites were still responsible for following God from that point. The Israelites were still responsible for being obedient to God. And he says here, nevertheless, he was not pleased with them. Why? Well, we start to see in their story that they were turning their back on God. They were being unfaithful to God. And you look at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. So Paul, again, he says, this is all so that we can learn from Israel. Now I just want to pause here and, and I hope you see what's happening. Paul's saying to the Corinthians and he's saying to us, the Old Testament is so important to our walk with Jesus. Now listen, some of you have never read the Old Testament before. You haven't touched it. But you have to understand that the Old Testament teaches us so much about God. And the Old Testament teaches us so much about the Christian life and about our place in the Christian life and about our relationship with Jesus, with God. And, and I, I was talking to some guys the other day. We were, we were studying the Bible together and we are talking about the Old Testament. And one of the guys said to me, he was like, dude, I've never read the Old Testament. And I was like, well, why? And he said, well, all it is is a bunch of genealogies. So-and-so begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, begat so-and-so, which begat is not even a word we use now. I think that's from the King James Version. But his perception was that the Old Testament was all these old, boring genealogies. And I was like, bro, like you're missing out on what's so awesome there. Like that's just a really small, tiny part of the Old Testament. Like every guy and every girl should love the Old Testament. I mean, if you look at the movies that we love, all of the, for you guys, all of the gore and all the, uh, the epic battles, uh, it, it's in the Old Testament. And, and of course, you know, guys love talking about sex. That's in the Old Testament too. Girls, you know, I think you're into romance. Uh, and, and you want to hear about the role that, that women have in God's story and God's plan, like romance. And uh, there's, there's women in the Old Testament that do some significant things for God and for his glory. And of course, girls like to talk about sex as well. That's in the Old Testament. Like guys and girls should love the Old Testament. It's, it's incredible what is there. And it teaches us so much. And, and I just, I, again, kind of another point here off to the side. I, I want to challenge you with this. I want to challenge you to open up the Old Testament and, and read it. You can't understand the New Testament apart from especially reading and understanding Exodus because there's so much in Exodus that is all, um, really everything in the Old Testament is, is, is pointing us to Jesus. And we have to remember. Remember, we need to be people who remember. But one of the biggest things that we see is, is we need to remember. And, and one of the things that I, I, I hear students say all the time is this, man, if God would just give me a sign, you know, if he'd just give me a sign, something miraculous, I'd always, I'd, shoot, I'd follow the junk out of him. You know, I would never waver in my faith again. And this is one of those instances where we need to remember. And we need to remember the Israelites because the Israelites, they had seen every sign under the sun. I mean, think about it. They had been led by this cloud, this pillar of fire. They'd been set free from Egypt through all these crazy, miraculous plagues. Crossed the Red Sea as it was parted. Crossed the Jordan River as it was parted. While they're in the desert, God comes down on Mount Sinai in a consuming fire. They saw all these crazy things, yet almost every time, seconds after seeing it, they would turn their back on God. A sign, seeing something miraculous, is not going to make you faithful the rest of your life uh, to God. The Israelites, God's chosen, special people, they forgot. They didn't remember what God was doing and had done. And, and, and because they forgot, they turned and set their hearts on evil things. And because they set their hearts on evil things, God was neither pleased nor glorified by them. And this leads to our first point. Our first point is this. Sin keeps us from glorifying God. 
sin keeps us from glorifying God. We cannot glorify God when we are living in and indulging in sin. And that's exactly what the Israelites were doing. You read on, look at, what, look at what's happening. Verse 7, he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Here, Paul's referring to Exodus 32, I think verse 6. And this is when God was at consuming Mount Sinai in fire, meeting with Moses, giving him the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law. And even though they're right there by the mountain, they, and, and seeing all this happen before their eyes, they turn their back on God. They build this idol of a golden calf, which I've said this before. I mean, if you're going to build an idol, build something cool, you know, like not a golden measly calf, but like a, I don't know, a golden statue of Chuck Norris, something awesome, you know, worship that, not an idol of a calf, <laughs> you know, but, but don't worship that. Chuck Norris is not nearly as awesome as God. But they were, they were worshiping uh, this, this idol, and they had turned their back on, on God, and they were having these pagan festivities to them. And you listen to what it says. It says they were offering sacrifices to this idol, and then they would eat, they would drink, and then they'd wake up early to play. Now, I want to stop for a second and think about this. I want to bring this into our world. Like, I don't, I don't think we really in our world worship idols like they did. However, we do worship idols. In fact, what if we saw um, the idols and the things that we worshiped as the things that we give most of our time to? I mean, think about that. What, what do you give most of your time to? Uh, some of you, it's, it's your job, maybe, or, or your relationships, um, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your studies. Some of you, a lot of you, it's probably the Internet, social media, um, other things on the Internet. Some of you, it's TV, you know, Breaking Bad reruns or whatever it is. Uh, some of you, it's, it's just straight up money. Like that is what you give your time to is pursuing money and spending money. Some of you, it's better bodies. Some of you fellas, like you spend all your time in the gym working out. Some of you girls, you spend all your time in the gym working out or you spend all your time and your money on that uh, tanning membership, spending time in the tanning bed. Some of you, you spend all your time pursuing social status. I mean, there's a whole list of things that we could, that we could put here. And my question is, what if these are our idols? I mean, the Israelites, they were experts in idolatry. They knew how to worship idols, and the reality is so do we. I mean, think, I think it would be a very interesting um, exercise to do if this week you took like a spreadsheet or just a piece of paper and you logged what, how you spent your time every 30 minutes of the day. What, 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 you know, what would you see? What would that reveal about where your worship is, where your heart is? I mean, let's just think about that question. Like, what, what is it that you're giving your heart to? The Israelites, they were idolaters. And idolatry is a sin. And sin keeps us from glorifying God. Now, you read further, verse, uh, verse 8. It says, We must not indulge in sexual morality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. Now, here, he's referring to Numbers chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. The Israelites, they were indulging in all kinds of sexual immorality with these Moabite women. Moabites were another nation uh, living near where the Israelites were. The Corinthian church was very similar. We've seen that in our studies on uh, our, our talk on his sex your God, um, Porn Tuesday, that talk, and then uh, the other talk on sex that we did. I can't remember what we called it, but it's on the podcast. The reality is we live in an overly sexually immoral culture. And when that culture bleeds into our lifestyle as opposed to the church, us bleeding into the lifestyle of culture, it keeps us from glorifying God. And let me tell you what's scary about this. What's scary about this is that there are so many sexually immoral things that are not considered immoral by our culture. 
And so here's what that means. What that means is there are things that many of you who are watching this or listening to this, there are things that many of you are are taking part in that you probably don't even realize are sexually immoral. And that's because culture has become your standard of truth rather than God's word. And the reality is the Israelites, they were sexually immoral. That sexual immorality was a sin, and that sin was keeping them from glorifying God. You get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 9. The first part of verse 9, it says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Here he's referring to Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 through 6. The Israelites, they were getting impatient in the desert, and so out of their impatience, they began to question God's plan and God's purpose. If you go back to Numbers 21, verses 4 through 6, listen to what it says. It says, Uh, The Israelites, they're crying out now. They're complaining. And they say, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. It reminds me of a scene out of Dumb and Dumber where Lloyd's standing up against the window and he says, uh, He says, We have no food. We have no jobs. Our pets' heads are falling off. I just want to go someplace where we know someone who can pluck us into the social pipeline. And Harry says, Where do you want to go, Lloyd? And he says, I want to go to a place called Aspen. I don't know why I just went off that tangent, but I love the movie. So, The point is, (laughs) the Israelites, they were upset. They were upset because it was taking longer than what they wanted. They were upset because they didn't have the choice food that they wanted to eat. They're eating this manna, this dry bread that was fallen from heaven. They were upset because they were thirsty. They didn't like their living situations. Even though God was perfectly providing for their needs, they were getting upset and they were grumbling because things weren't going how they envisioned it. And so they tested God. And and in their testing of God, they sinned. Therefore, they were not glorifying God. And then you see in verse 10, verse 10, it says, it says they grumbled. And he says, don't grumble. Some of them did and were destroyed by by the destroyer. This is coming out of Numbers chapter 16, verses 41 through 49. It's a long story, but the point is, essentially at the end of it, the people grumbled against Moses and Aaron and they grumbled against God. The Israelites were grumblers. Their grumbling was sin, and their sin was keeping them from glorifying God. So here we have Israelites' chosen people, privileged people. They'd experienced all of this stuff, and yet they were still turning their back on God, and that sin kept them from glorifying God. That's our first truth. Sin keeps us from glorifying God. These next two will be a little bit quicker. So you look at verse 11, 1 Corinthians Chapter 10, verse 11 says this, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. NIV says it's, it's a warning for us. And so we have to ask the question, okay, so why is this a warning for us? Or what is this warning us from? And it's warning us of the consequences of sin. I think I've shared this story before. Uh, my fraternity, we always would go on a float trip in the spring. And, and the first float trip I ever went on with my fraternity uh, that year, Arkansas was getting tons and tons of rain. And so all the rivers in Arkansas were flooding. And, and the weekend we were supposed to go, it was pouring rain all over Arkansas, so all the rivers were at flood stage. And so we, uh, the river we were going to go to was closed, but we found this one river that hadn't closed yet. And so we go up there, and we go camping the night before, and a uh, beautiful night. But then at about 2 a.m., it starts to just dump rain on our campsite. And so the next morning we get up and we're standing by the bank of the river and it was, the, the water was rising so fast that you could literally see the water moving up the banks. Like it was, it was pretty in, intense, pretty crazy. Long story short, the guy that had our canoes uh, told us that he wasn't going to let us on the river. So we 
begged him and convinced him to let us on the river. So he takes us up. We're going we're gonna to go about what would have been an eight-hour float. Uh, he takes us up river. We're going to float eight hours down back to our campsite. And he was going to drop us in there. So we get there. We've got all of our life jackets on. We've got about 30, 40 canoes out there because there are a bunch of us there, two to each canoe. And we're standing there. Everybody's hooping and hollering, excited because the water's flowing like crazy. And all of a sudden, from upstream, this massive Arkansas pine tree comes flying down the river. And I don't know if you've ever seen an Arkansas pine tree. It's a big tree. This thing comes horizontal flying down the river. So it's all loud and rambunctious. We're laughing. We're excited. And all of a sudden, all of us out of the corner of our eyes see this tree, and it gets dead silent. And as we watch this tree float by. And I know, I know what I was thinking. I know what every dude that was there was thinking. We're all thinking, what in the world? Like, we're not getting on this river. But there was one guy in the back, and that one guy, he just goes, woo! And if you know how guys are, it's like, hey, if one guy says we're going, then in our pride, we're not going to back down. So everybody else is like, yeah, let's go, let's do this. So we ended up getting on this river, and uh, within the first minute, we snapped two canoes in half. Um, by the end of the trip, we had lost three canoes, either at the bottom of the river or downriver. They they dumped and gotten away from us. One One canoe had gotten trapped up against a tree, and both guys were trapped underneath that canoe. They were able to get out before they drowned. Uh, my canoe and another guy's canoe, we flipped. As, as I'm just floating down the river in my life jacket, I look over, and two of my fraternity brothers are up in a tree, hanging over the river, hanging on for dear life, shivering because it was cold. And I'm like, what are y'all doing up in the tree? And they're like, we don't know where our canoe went. So they're hanging on for dear life. And, uh, and then a couple of my buddies, uh, their canoes crashed. Long story short, one of the guys was dragged to the bottom. It, uh, he, he busted his leg open. He ended up in the hospital for, uh, for weeks because his leg, it was disgusting. I won't give you the details. But I share that story because the consequences of sin are devastating. And I'm not saying that us getting on the river was a sin. What I am saying, though, is it wasn't a good decision. And sin is never a good decision. So the, so the first point is sin keeps us from glorifying God. The second point is the consequences of sin are devastating. And I want you to quickly look at this, verse 5. Verse 5, Paul says, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Uh, the NIV, that last part says, their bodies were scattered over the desert. This does not mean that they were laying out sunbathing. What this means is that because of their sin, God said, look, none of you are going to be able to enter the promised land. There were only two, Joshua and Caleb, who ended up letting enter into the promised land. Not even Moses was allowed to go into the promised land because they had disobeyed. They had turned their back on God. Then you get to verse 8. In verse 8, it says, uh, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And the result was 23,000 fell in a single day. So the result of their sin was 23,000 people died. You look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. We actually saw this story last week at Overflow. God sent all these snakes on their camp and people were dying left and right because of their disobedience. And then verse 10 you see, Don't grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. He's referring to this plague that hit them and 15,000 people died from this plague. Out of, out of all of the Israelites, only two were able to enter into the promised land. Everyone, including Moses, was kept out because of their sin. They eventually died. And the point is, the consequences of sin are devastating. They're huge. Sin kills and destroys. And Paul, he's, he's trying to help the Corinthians see that if, 
if they were living in sin, there would be huge consequences for that. Not only personal consequences, but consequences for the people around them, the non-believers around them, because God is not going to be glorified in their sin. Therefore, these people who are still needing to see Jesus wouldn't see Jesus. That's some huge consequences. And people would literally die because of the Corinthians' sin. Now, I want to stop here for a second, because some of you may be asking this question. Is what Paul's saying, uh, is he trying to say that we can lose our salvation if we begin to live in sin? And the answer is definitely no. Uh, There's plenty of biblical evidence to back that up. But what he is trying to say is this, sin can suck the life out of a believer. And sin can suck the life out of a ministry or out of a church. It can suck the life out of a movement. And that's exactly what happened in the Israelites' lives. And that's exactly what was happening in the Corinthian church. It was like this plague. And and a plague leads to widespread sickness and death. And so the question that we have to ask is, is is that what is happening among us? I mean, does this exist among us? Do these sins exist in our ministry, in our church? Truth number one is sin keeps us from glorifying God. Truth number two is the consequences of sin are devastating. And now we're going to get to that third truth. Before we get there, I just want to tell you you need to strap on your big boy pants or big girl pants because it's about to get good. Verse 11, look at verse 11 again. It says this, Now, these things happened to them, the Israelites, as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That last phrase there is huge. Like underline it, circle it, point arrows to it. It says, this has been written down for us on whom the end of the ages has come. The NIV says, on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. That word end or fulfillment in Greek is the word telos. I want everybody to say telos. (laughs) Some of you are like, I can't believe I just actually said alone in my room, telos, as I'm watching this. Hey, it's good. You're learning. You're learning here with me. Telos. This is the Greek word telos. And we see this a few times in the New Testament. Um, it, It means end or or result, or outcome, or goal. A couple of the places we see this word in the New Testament is 1 Peter 1.9. It says, for you are receiving the goal, that's that word telos, the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 1 Timothy 1.5, it says, the goal, or the telos, of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So we see the word in, in other places in the New Testament. Now those two examples, it's not used in the same way that we see it used here in 1 Corinthians 10.11. But there is one place in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, where we see this word telos used in the same way that we see it used here in verse 11 of 1 Corinthians. Romans 10, 4 says this, Christ, Jesus, says Jesus is the end or the telos or the fulfillment of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Now read 1 Corinthians 10, 11 again. It says, all this was written down for us on whom the end or the fulfillment of the ages has come. Romans 10.4 says that Jesus is the end. Jesus is the fulfillment. So when Paul says, on whom the fulfillment has come, what he's saying is this was written down for us, on whom Jesus has come. In other words, Christ is the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament law. He's the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament prophets and writers and everybody was talking about. I mean, the reality is you read the Old Testament, which is why you need to read the Old Testament, you will see that all of it is pointing forward to Jesus. It's all talking about 
Jesus. And so Jesus' death and resurrection marked the end of this previous age, hence the Old Testament. Now we have the New Testament. Where does that break come? It comes when Jesus comes. And so sin's time of power and reign has gone and Christ's time has come. So first truth is sin keeps us from glorifying God. Second truth is the consequences of sin are devastating. And the last truth, the third truth, is sin stands no chance in this age. Sin has no power in this age. Though sin still exists, it only exists because it has been all but completely eliminated from this age. And the age that is coming, uh, where it will be fully eliminated, in other words, when Jesus comes back, that age, that time, that moment is coming soon. Um, basically coming right out of Romans 5.21, it says this, Just as sin reigned in death, so grace now reigns through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's true because Jesus is the end of the law, Romans 10.4. Grace, it's a big word, grace, is the avenue through which we are now able to overcome sin in the world. It's grace, or it's by grace that we believe. Acts 18, verse 27. It's by grace that we're justified, Romans 3.24. It's by grace that we are set apart and called, Galatians 1.15. It's by grace that we become his servants, Ephesians 3.7. It's by grace that we are encouraged, strengthened, and given hope, 2 Thessalonians 2.16-17. It's by grace that we're saved, Ephesians 2.8. And it's because of grace that comes through Jesus Christ that Paul says what he says next. You look at verse 12, and he says this, Therefore, because of this grace, because Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Notice who's doing the action there. It's God who's faithful, and it's he who won't let you be tempted, and it's he who will also provide the way of escape from temptation. So three truths. Sin keeps us from glorifying God. The consequences of sin are devastating. And then sin stands no chance in this age. Three truths, powerful truths, and there's still this one important message that we need to see. So if you back up to verses 1 through 4, you see how Paul shows how in the Old Testament, the Israelites' journey, you see basically three parts to their journey. They're set free from captivity in Egypt, just like we're set free from captivity to sin. Then they're baptized into Moses through their experience of being set free. Just like when we're set free from captivity in Egypt, it's, it's through Jesus. So we're baptized into Christ. Romans 6, if we've died with him, then surely we'll rise with him. And then you see how he shows that after they were set free, they began to be fed spiritually, both physically and spiritually, by God. In the same way that we, now, in our journey with Christ, he feeds us through his word and through the Holy Spirit, speaking into our lives. Paul says all of this to the Corinthians for one very important reason. He says this, um, he, he says this, he challenges them not to forget for, for this reason. You look at the Israelites. The Israelites, they had followed God, and they had seen God work, and they had the privilege of being God's chosen people. Yet, they allowed the sinfulness of their culture around them to bleed into their lifestyle. 
They allowed sin to creep into their lives. And because of that, they were falling away from God. And the same thing was happening to Corinth. And Paul wanted them to see this. He wanted them to recognize this so they wouldn't do the same thing or, or fall, fall victim to the same mistakes that the Israelites had made, that they already had that history to look back and see. And, and so for us, there's still one last step we have to take in this Bible study process, and that's this. We've got to ask the question, okay, what about us? What about you? When you think about everything that Paul's just said, when you think about the journey of Israel, what about you? Are you standing firm? Or are you becoming a victim to the sinful culture that's around you? What's bleeding the most? Is, is culture bleeding into your life more? Or are you bleeding into culture and impacting culture more than culture is impacting you? You know, we're calling this series Contrast for a reason. And this is a perfect time to ask the question, is there a contrast? Is there a contrast between you as a believer, if you are truly a believer who's put your faith in Christ, is there a contrast between you and those who don't know Jesus? There should be. So three truths. Sin keeps us from glorifying God. If we have allowed the sinful ways of culture to affect us, then we may not be glorifying God like we think we are. Second truth is this, the consequences of sin are devastating. And hear this, I think this is huge. They're devastating not because of the personal consequences you may face, but because the reality is when you or when I am living in sin, the people around us, especially the non-believers around us, are affected. I mean, your neighbors are affected, your classmates are affected, your roommate is affected. I mean, people around you who don't know Jesus, they're not going to see Jesus in you if you're indulging in living in sin and the consequences are huge. And then the last thing is sin stands no chance in this age. Um, and, and praise God for that because Jesus has become the fulfillment of the law. And through him and only through him can we overcome sin. Through him and only through him and the power that he offers us through the Holy Spirit can, can we change and can we grow and can we have an impact on the people around us. Because of him, sin stands no chance in this age. And so, with all that being said, I just want to end by reading what Paul says at the end of this here. He says, If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you do not fall. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful and he shows that to us through Jesus. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to the Overflow Podcast. Please feel free to download and share with friends. We ask that you do not alter any of the previous content in any way. For more information about Overflow, feel free to visit us online at overflowdenton.org.